Not exactly a cheery passage, is it? Not exactly. Um, we said back in uh, September, October, that one of the things we want to do each month was give you an update on our church finances. So before we jump into the sermon proper, I want to, I want to do that. We made everyone aware that if we, back in September, that if we didn't see some changes in our giving, that we would be tapping into our reserves at a rate of approximately $10,000 a month. That hasn't been necessary because you immediately kicked in in the months of October, November, December. We're very strong, and we're still strong in a pretty good spot at the end of January. However, because, in fact, uh, those three months were so good. However, we wanted to let you know that the average weekly giving in January was not as strong as it has been. So the offering has been about $13,000 a week. And a couple of weeks ago, at our congregational annual meeting, we approved an operating plan for the remainder of the fiscal year that requires between sixteen dollars and $17,000 per week. So if you have been given, I want to thank you. Uh, if you've not been giving, uh, I, I encourage you to step out in faith, to trust that God is able to provide. And as the Apostle Paul instructs us in 2 Corinthians 9, to prayerfully decide in your hearts what you are to give on a monthly basis, and then follow through on that commitment with... Uh, Intentional faithfulness is what we refer to. And once again, if you simply cannot give right now, that's fine. We know that times can be tough uh, during the season. And if we can ask you to trust God, then we can trust God as well. I just thank you for continuing to be interested in these things. So we enter in uh, today, to week five of our journey through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we said way back at the beginning, the first couple of weeks, we laid out a foundation for us to, to build on how we read, understand, interpret, and apply the Sermon on the Mount, and it had two layers. The first one was that the Sermon on the Mount was to be taken seriously. It was not some pie-in-the-sky ideal that we can never attain, that it's there simply to make us feel bad and that we need to, to make us realize that we need a Savior, we need forgiveness, and that is true. But we are to take it seriously. We are to seek to live it, which gives us the second part of the foundation, which is that we don't do this alone. We live it out in the power of God's kingdom. <clears throat> we live it out in the power of God's kingdom. We have received a blessing in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon that empower us to enter into the kingdom, and with Christ living in us, Christ's power enables us to live out a kingdom-shaped life. And we live in a world, friends, that needs us to live that kind of life. In the words of our ECC touchstones, uh, we need uh, to practice transformation. We need to enter into the world as those who uh, have been transformed and are being transformed so that we can be the presence of God in Christ to our neighbors, to our community, to our co-workers, and so forth. We live in a world that is in desperate need of transformation. We live in a community that desperately needs transformation. We are part of a congregation that desperately needs transformation. And every minute of every day, we are all busy either becoming something more than we were or something less than we were. And Jesus invites us. He invites us to step into his kingdom, to access the power that he gives us, and to learn to live a new way, to learn to live a kingdom-shaped life, which taps into our overall good news for this entire series, which is this. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live life purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live life purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. <clears throat> There's a skit on YouTube. I've linked it in your Bible app uh, for fun later. 
with Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart played a uh, psychiatrist in the 1970s in a sitcom, and in this skit, which is, I don't know, maybe 20 years old, uh, he is playing a psychiatrist again, so it's a very popular skit on YouTube. And in this scene, how many have seen this is the one I'm talking about? I knew you had, yeah. Uh, in this scene, uh, a woman comes in to ask for his help as a psychiatrist, and she tells him uh, her, her problem. Her problem is, she says, I have this incredible fear of being buried alive in a box. I start thinking about it, and I just begin to panic. And Bob continues to probe her a little bit and said, well, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she says, no. And he says, well, I think I can help you. I think I have, I have two words for you, two, two words. I want you to take these two words. I want you to remember them. I want you to take them into your life and apply them to your life. Are you ready for the two words? She said, yes, she's ready. Here they are, he says. Stop it! Stop it! It sounds terrible. That sounds horrible. And she goes on to say other things she's dealing with, and every time Bob says, stop it! This is his advice. And it's funny to us because we know there are some things you just can't stop. There are some things you, can't, you just can't do. And we may feel that way when we look at the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> There's challenge in teaching there. And we may feel sometimes that Jesus is saying, stop it! But it takes more than that. There are things behind our behaviors. Take anger, for example, that we looked at last week. You can't just stop being angry. It doesn't work that way. You have to figure out why you're angry. You have to do some work. You have to lean into the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom, the power of the Spirit at work within us. You have to lean into spiritual practices as you make your way forward to becoming a more kingdom-oriented person. We have to make use of the power of Christ in us, the hope of glory, Scripture calls him, for the kingdom is ours. So <clears throat> this week we move from Anger, murder, and hate from last week to lust and divorce. Lucky me. Every time I've preached on the Sermon on the Mount, I always end up with this passage. I'd love to give it to someone else sometime. And in this, and one of the reasons these two things are together is because Jesus knows that one of these often leads to the other. They are together. And Jesus is directing most of his words here, I would say actually in this context, all of his words toward men in that context because men had all the power. Men, for example, weren't ever really considered guilty of adultery, not within Judaism, not saying that, but within culture. <clears throat> they weren't considered guilty of adultery if they committed adultery unless the woman they cheated with was married to another man. Then he was guilty. Why? Because she was the other man's property. He had offended the other man. Women, however, were always considered guilty of such things. And so Jesus feels the need to talk to us about these kinds of things. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want you to notice what we've already seen in last week's passage, and we'll see it several more, time, several more times, that Jesus begins, you have heard it said thus and such, but I say to you something different. <clears throat> Jesus is looking at the law of Moses, and he's reinterpreting it in a new context, and he's, and he's, he's adding commentary on it. He's riffing on it. You have heard it said this in the law, but I'm telling you this. Jesus is engaging what the ancient rabbis called midrash, an ancient mode of exposition, investigation, and commentary on Hebrew scriptures. They would argue about it. And Jesus is taking this, and he is deepening 
Moses' law. He's riffing on it. Scott, uh, scholar Scott McKnight would say this. <clears throat> on the mountain, Jesus sits in the posture of Moses, quotes Moses, and then deepens Moses. On the mountain, Jesus sits in the posture of Moses, quotes Moses, and then deepens Moses. Jesus engages on, in Midrash on the law of Moses. He deepens it. Jesus knows that we can keep the law of Moses by not committing adultery, <clears throat> but still violate it and violate the intent of the law by harboring lust or objectifying others in our hearts and lives. He's not, Jesus is not interested in giving us a whole new set of laws that we have to obey. Jesus is interested in our transformation. It may not surprise, surprise you to know that in that day, as is often the case now, women, <clears throat> women were held responsible for men who lusted. It was their fault. To get an idea of how bad this was, I want to read to you uh, a portion. It's not from the Bible. It's from another uh, Jewish source outside the Bible, from the testimony of Reuben. Women contrive in their hearts against men. <clears throat> then by decking themselves out, they lead men's minds astray. By a look, they implant their poison. And finally, in the act itself, they take them captive. Somebody needs counseling. <clears throat> Somebody has mommy issues here. But Jesus turns the table. <clears throat> he says, no, no, no. This is not their fault. Men need to take responsibility for it. They're the ones lusting in their hearts. They're the ones committing adultery of the heart. And something has to be done about this. You can't just ignore it. You can't just dismiss it. You can't gloss over it. You need to do something about it. Now he gets radical. <clears throat> if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. First of all, I think, I hope we all know this is hyperbole. We do not always have to take Jesus literally, but we do have to take him seriously. Some people in church history have taken him literally. It did not go well. Jesus is talking about the importance and saying that something has to be done. As one scholar put it, Jesus knows that sexual sin begins in the eye and how we see other human beings. Some scholars would say all sin begins in the eye, how we see the world in which we live, how we interpret the world. And while it is easy to hear <clears throat> Jesus in this context sounding a bit like Bob Newhart and saying, stop it, there's more going on here. There's more going on here. Jesus' goal here is, and all throughout the New Testament, is not simply that we stop sinning. The, the goal is that we become the kind of people who do not want to sin. The goal in this context, this passage, the goal of life in God's kingdom is to become the kind of people who do not lust and do not objectify others, but pursue healthy, godly relationships instead. The goal of life in God's kingdom is to become the kind of people who do not lust, and do not objectify others, but pursue healthy, godly relationships instead. And for that to happen, <clears throat> Jesus knows action must be taken. We've got to deal with the root of the sin. We've got to get to the heart of it. And that means it's going to cost us something. And that's really what this imagery is getting at. It's going to cost you something to become this kind of person. Notice in the passage <clears throat> that I just read that Jesus refers to the right eye. Why the right eye? The right eye in, uh, ancient, in the ancient world was a symbol of status. 
The right hand was the honorable hand, the left hand not so much. So if the right eye is gouged out, you lose status, you lose something, it costs you something. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, the men of Jabesh go to uh, Nahash the Ammonite and they want to make a treaty with him. This is how Nahash replied. I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. <clears throat> See the connection? He knows if he takes the right eyes, they will be disgraced. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. This word that we uh, translate as lust is, is, the, is the Greek word epithumia. It can mean a lot of things that all center around this idea. Desire, craving, longing, desire for what is forbidden, and lust. <clears throat> epithumia. Typically, we think of men, and in this context, clearly Jesus is directing his, his words toward men. Typically, we think of men when we think of lust. But James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, that many of us are reading, suggests that there is a, 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 a way that this can apply to women today as well. He will say, and I will say, I don't know all women. I don't even know all of what I'm about to say. I'm simply reporting what I hear, so don't get mad at me. <clears throat> That for women, it's not, and some women do lust just as men do, but for most women, perhaps, it is more like a craving or a longing for something better, maybe the kind you find in a cheap romance novel or in a certain kind of movie where the guy that's there is the one that's going to sweep you away from everything that's horrible and is a better spouse than the one you've got. Or can it be a real person, too? Someone that you actually know with whom you have an emotional connection. This is true of some men, too. We can find an emotional connection with someone we think perhaps understands us better than our spouse does at times. It's not always a sexual lust. It's a bigger thing than that. And when I think of this, I could not help but, and we have to have, I have to find humor wherever I can, people. The Sermon on the Mount is not a funny text. <clears throat> um, I think of the movie, the Pixar movie, Inside Out, when Riley's mom is really disgusted with her husband across the table who has no emotional intelligence whatsoever to deal with his daughter, and the emotions inside his mo uh, Riley's mom's head throw up the picture of the Brazilian helicopter pilot who says, come fly with me, Katina. It's a way to get away, to be rescued. That is epithumia. That is epithumia. All of it is epithumia. Then Jesus moves on to talk about a potential outcome of epithumia, divorce. And I think we all know the impact that divorce has in our society, the impact it can have on families, the spouses, their friends. <clears throat> the church I served before this one, there was a two-year period, approximately a two-year period, where three or four, I think, and I think I'm being conservative there, three or four couples went through a divorce in a church of less than 200 people. That has an impact. Spouses suffered, any children they had suffered, their friends suffered. It was damaging to their sisters and brothers in Christ in the church as well. And so Jesus sees the need to speak to divorce. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. <clears throat> Again, I want you to keep in mind the context. He's speaking to men because men have all the power to divorce. Women could divorce in the ancient world, but it's very rare. It's mostly men that have the power to divorce. This idea of the certificate of divorce, again, here's Jesus quoting from Moses before he gets ready to do some midrash on it. Uh, he's quoting from Moses, and it comes from Deuteronomy 24. 
if a man marries a woman and becomes, who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then it goes on for another three verses uh, but, which, that explain this regulation. But for our purposes, all we need is verse 1 to see where Jesus is getting this. Here's the problem. Rabbis doing midrash on this, trying to understand what it meant, and probably trying to justify some things, wrestled with what this word displeasing might mean and what this word indecent might mean. And when they did, they came up with everything and from sexual immorality, adultery, to a badly made dinner, to my wife yelled at me so loud the neighbors heard, to I found someone prettier. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. Those are the kind of ideas the rabbis had come up with in doing their midrash, and Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. You have abused this. That is not what is going on. So he goes on to tell them his thoughts on this. Verse 32, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is trying to attack this overly permissive society in which he lives where people have abused the certificate of divorce where it's basically very easy for men to get a divorce and he's trying to put some limits on it. He's also doing this because, quite frankly, it's all tied to how women get treated because in this situation, women almost always got the raw end of the deal. They almost always didn't do well. This is why the older translation says causes her to commit adultery. The newer translation says makes her the victim of adultery. When a woman was uh, divorced by, by a man, she had only a few options she could remarry, in which in the eyes of society and people who would interpret these things, she's now an adulteress because she is remarried. I'm not saying God was judging her. I'm saying that's where you become a victim of adultery. Or she could become a prostitute, or she could be poor. It was a no-win situation. So she becomes a victim of adultery. And he goes on and says, and anyone, any man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is Jesus turning right back around. You're still a part of the problem, men. You have to own what you're doing. You're, you don't get off scot-free. And then there's the exception clause, except for sexual immorality. Fascinating thing, this clause is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark and in Luke, it's not there. <clears throat> there are scholars who think either A, for some reason, Mark and Luke left it out, or B, Matthew added it. Now, before you get too upset and want to throw tomatoes at me, I'm just telling you what scholars think. <laughs> And if Matthew did add it in, his purpose was to say, oh, no, no, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not dissing Moses. Jesus is not disagreeing with Moses. Jesus agrees with Moses that there is a permissible uh, offense, a permissible reason for a divorce. Don't, Jesus would not contradict the law. He's fulfilling the law, right? And maybe he's doing that. Maybe that's what's going on. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. That's in Matthew 19, verse 8. Same idea going on. You see that? Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because the Pharisees come and they throw the same thing at Jesus. They say, Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, no, he didn't command you. He permitted you because your hearts were hard. So what we're seeing here is a, a building of, of uh, permissible reasons for divorce. 
sexual immorality, and now hearts are hard. And guess what? Hearts are still hard. There may be other reasons for uh, divorce that are permissible. And if they are permissible, if you get to that place where that's what has to be done, it's the best of all possible options, then it is also permissible to remarry. It's my opinion in the study that I've done. The word that is used to describe this clause of sexual immorality is the word pornaya. It means sexual immorality of all kinds, and metaphorically it can mean idolatry, which makes some sense if you think about it. It's everything you can imagine, from incest to adultery, all sorts of things. But we live in a, we live in a kingdom reality, friends, again, where even if all of these things are off, these permissible things are wrong, and, and even if somebody divorces for the wrong reasons, we can experience the forgiveness and grace of God in Christ. The truly repentant, the truly faithful, can remarry. And if this bothers us, that we have these exceptions that seem to be building, it continues to build. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 24, Paul is dealing with the question of believers who are married to unbelievers. And he says there, To the believers, if you are married to an unbeliever, do not divorce this person. And then in verse 15 he says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. Knowing full well what Moses said and what Jesus said, the Apostle Paul expands the definition of permissiveness. He adds to the words of Jesus. He supplements it in the words of Moses. See, the intent of all this is to try to encourage us not to give up on our marriages too quickly. The intent is that we become the kind of people who are faithful in marriage and honorable in our relationships with others outside of marriage. Again, the goal of life in God's kingdom is to become the kind of people who do not lust and do not objectify others but pursue healthy, godly relationships instead. And this is true of both married people and singles. That's the goal in this context, in this section. And as I said, there's a place for redemption, there's a place for forgiveness. Even if you divorce for all the wrong reasons, even if it's all your fault and you committed some gross sin, there is a place for forgiveness, redemption, and I believe for remarriage because that's what the grace of God can do. And we have no better place to see the, um, the redemptive possibilities for such gross sin in the Bible, in my opinion, than the story of King David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And there, King David is up on the roof when he should be out at war with his troops. He's up on the roof. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He takes her. He has lust in his heart, and he takes her. She has no, no recourse. She can't say no to the king. He takes her. He violates her. And when David finds out that she has become pregnant, in order to make sure he isn't found out, he has her husband killed, Uriah. And then later, the child born of this union also dies. Look at the damage David has done. He's damaged Bathsheba. He's certainly damaged Uriah. He's had him killed. The child has died. He's damaged his own relationship with God. The story doesn't end there. He is confronted by Nathan the prophet with his sin. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession and repentance. 
And we may think this is a horribly gross sin. There's no redemption that can ever come out of this. He should never be able to get away. I mean, it's not just the violation of Bathsheba. It's also murder. There's no way. Except in Matthew 1. 1, 1.6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew can't even bring himself to say her name. But there she is. This union that was so horrible at the time, out of this union comes Solomon, who's in the line of Christ. And we go a little further down in that line, Matthew 1.16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Out of such gross sin and abuse of power, redemptive purposes can come, even to the point of the birth of the Messiah, whose very words we look at and study this morning. If the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not that we do not sin, but rather that we become the kind of people who do not want to lust or commit adultery or divorce one another, how are we to respond? How are we transformed? The best way I know to be transformed, friends, is what has shown itself to be true down through the ages, hundreds of years, and that is spiritual practices. It's not the only part of it, but it's part of it. We confess our sins to God as David did. We confess our sins to one another. We have someone that we can walk with in these things. We hold one another accountable. We spend time in God's word, reading and praying and meditating on it. I believe that when the spirit of God and the word of God interact in our life, they have a transformative power on us over the long haul. We develop practices of prayer about these things. We ask God for help. We ask others to pray with us. We practice silence and solitude. We sit quietly in the presence of God. It's a transformative thing. And we practice fasting. From food, yes, but in this context, media, entertainment, which is where a lot of the temptations to lust uh, come from. And I would add to this therapy. There are some things that we just can't stop. Even with all the prayer in the world, we may still need some help figuring out who we are, why we do the things we do. We may need that help. In all of this, We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We cooperate with the grace of God by engaging in these practices, and that is how we are transformed. St. Augustine, when talking about this need for transformation and how God does it, St. Augustine said this, Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Without God, we cannot become Christiform people. We cannot become Christ-like people. It won't happen. And without us, God will not force it on us. It's possible to live your whole life, be saved, and go to heaven when you die, and be a jerk. If you want to enter into transformation, you have to do it with God in these practices and cooperate with the Spirit, because without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. We have the power, though, as we enter into the kingdom of God. We have the power. That's what we were promised. The Apostle Paul says just as much in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ, and now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Christ who lives through me. We have Christ living in us to enable us to do these things. We have the power. God has given us the power. So as we prepare now for communion, If you are one who has never yet entered into that relationship with Christ, you've never stepped into that kingdom power. If you are one who's had the kind of failures that we're talking about here, the gross sin, 
if lust and divorce and adultery, if any of that or related things have played a part in your life and you have given yourself to them, there is a chance for forgiveness. There is the offer of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And there is the offer of a new way forward in his redemptive purposes. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I invite you just to pray with me as we close. Good and gracious God, I thank you for difficult words in this Sermon on the Mount. I thank you, Lord, that we can entrust ourselves to you as we hear these challenging words. And I pray that your spirit now would be at work in those who need to hear what you have to say. In those who need to confess sin, in those who need to enter into a relationship with you. And I pray, Lord God, right now, you would give them the courage to pray along with me. Father God, I repent of my sin. I repent of my lust, of my anger, of all the ways that I have hurt others and rebelled against you. And I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that your spirit would empower me and teach me to live purposefully and abundantly in your kingdom here, now, and forever.